Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Todd Goldberg and Rahul Vora of the Todd and Rahul Angel Fund. Guys, could you have been a bit more original with the name? A bit more clever. Todd, bro, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Cool. Thank you. So, uh, Todd, you were former YC founder, CEO of, of, of Ventjoy. Uh, Raul is the current co-founder of Superhuman. Uh, by way of introduction, I-, I want you to introduce the other person's superpower. Todd, what makes Raul so special? And Raul, what-, what makes Todd so special? Todd, why don't you start off? Sure. Uh, as someone who loves building products, I think Rahul is probably one of the sharpest product people I know. And every time we talk, I just learn a ton from him every time. Raul, how would you introduce Todd's superpower? So Todd and I have been co-investing in angel, angel deals together for... Gosh, a good number of years now, probably about eight years. And the thing I admire most about Todd is his ability to remain level-headed, pragmatic, and to do deep due diligence when I would probably be super optimistic, gung-ho, and just uh, pull the trigger on a deal immediately. Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a great team. Uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of uh, you know solo GP funds, but I think the idea of a you know super high brand founder who has a lot of you know, specialized deal flow and a super strong full-time angel partnering up makes makes a lot of sense. And you guys are riding this sort of nano GP or micro GP wave. You know, we saw sort of a, a wave of it a decade ago. There's a lot that rhymes with it. Uh, how do you make sense? Maybe Todd, we'll start with you of, of what's happening here. What enabled the last year to be so, you know, gangbusters for so many firms to get off the ground? And uh, where is this going? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we've always had angel investors in the Valley, I think that term is maybe a bit more diluted more than ever these days. You have angels who have personal capital, there's syndicates, there's operator angel funds kind of like us. But I think the net net is that you're seeing kind of the rise of not only super angels, but just more angels. And I think the flip side of that is that many of these angels aren't just founders, they're also operators. These are operators that are coming out of well-known alumni networks like Airbnb, Slack, Lyft, uh, Uber. And you know when operators also from those companies end up leaving those companies, the first people they're going to are actually these angel operators yeah. before they're even going to VCs. But what's changed about this? Wasn't this the true in 2015 or what's, what's the difference? Well, I think there's a strong tailwind right now where you're seeing a lot of folks leave these later stage successful companies to go off and found their own companies. Sometimes they're first time founders, sometimes they're second founders, and they're going to their peers before they're initially going to VCs. And it just so happens, I think there's a lot of money chasing, you know, fewer deals these days. And it turns out that many of these operators and, and, and angels and or founders and operators are capitalized with funds or funds or syndicates, and they actually have the means to invest in their peers. I tweeted this, to zoom out for a second. Do you, do you guys think there's too much capital in the ecosystem today? I hear investors uh, say, say that a lot. I, I, I see how it uh, hurts their returns, but I, I don't see how it's worse for founders, especially a lot of founders that aren't, you know, able to raise money. Uh, and for the ecosystem at large, what's your take on, is there, is there too much capital or how do you even think about that? I certainly think there's too much capital in the ecosystem. And I would debate you on that. I think there is harm to founders. I think one of the services that investors used to provide when capital was perhaps a little bit more in short supply is the helpful determination on whether an idea should be invested in. 
And what we see today is ideas that uh, I've, I've been in the Valley for about 10 years now, ideas that back in uh, 2012 would never have got investment, those ideas and their cohorts constantly being funded. Uh, and I think that means that the investment community isn't quite doing a disservice to founders because no one's doing this intentionally, but it's certainly not helpful to founders because we're no longer helping folks pick the best ideas. Totally. And, and just to push on that, there's X amount of value created every year by startups, X amount of hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. Are we saying that if there was less capital in the system, that the overall output would be higher? Like there's like more capital means either less innovation or less innovation per capital? No, that's not really what I'm saying. Uh, what I'm saying is the efficiency of capital usage has gone down. Now, the counter argument is markets are growing faster than ever before. Broadband penetration is bigger than ever before. Mobile penetration is bigger than ever before. Our CPUs are faster than ever before. And basically, companies can get big faster than ever before. So actually, it probably warrants more capital. But I don't think we as the investment community have gotten particularly more sophisticated over how it gets deployed. Totally. How do we change that? <laughs> and hence microfunds, i.e., you know, diversify it across more and more managers, or how, how do you think that evolves? I'm not sure exactly how it changes. I think what we see is, you know, we see rounds that come together overnight, and they often become much larger than often initially intended. We also see rounds that, would, by what I call kind of the domino of diligence, where you get signal on a deal, they send it to someone else, that person invests, they send it to their peers, and you just kind of have this cascading diligence effect that ultimately creates a lot of hype behind companies sometimes. Maybe it's not warranted. And you also see more capital than go after these deals. And sometimes founders actually raise a lot more than they even initially planned right. because the capital is readily available. Sometimes the valuation even expands as a result of it. And then you have potentially knock-on effects later on as a result. I think that's a really important point just to riff off that. For any listener who's thinking, oh, I want to do what Todd and Rahul is doing and maybe find a partner to invest with, Find someone who'll say no, like Todd does from time to time, <laughs> even when there's tremendous hype and signal around a company. Totally. Yeah, so the counter argument is people get money for ideas that aren't validated or aren't good and that they shouldn't get money for. The counter, of course, is there are people who have good ideas who should get money and don't get it. And if we had more money, hopefully it, it might be distributed to those right people. Are you, are you sympathetic to, to that idea? And is it more just a function of tactics, uh, of i.e. how to deploy it more efficiently? I'm not sure I agree with the notion, perhaps I misunderstood, that there are people with good ideas who aren't okay. getting funded. Yeah. Well, it's a unfalsifiable uh, <laughs> uh, projection. It's just, yeah, just a uh, hypothetical. Why did you guys decide to raise an angel fund and, and why do it together? Yeah. Well, personally, I had been angel investing since 2014, but I didn't really start becoming active until early 2019. I noticed my deal flow expanded significantly, and I was really enjoying working with the companies I was fortunate enough to work with. I eventually scaled up my investing by launching Angelus Syndicate. So over the span of two months in mid-2019, I went from zero backers, which are kind of like LPs, to over 250 backers, enough to basically start running my own deals on top of Angelist. Uh, after leading three syndicates during this time, I quickly realized syndicates aren't ideal. They're often a bad UX for founders, and you just can't move quick enough for many of the hyper-fast competitive deals that are going on today in the Valley. So I decided to raise a small angel fund. Rahul was actually one of the first people I mentioned it to. So once I created a draft deck and showed him, he suggested we do the fund together. 
And while that wasn't something I really expected, everything kind of clicked from there because the combo just made a ton of sense. And I think in terms of venture, you want to have every natural advantage and edge you can get to make sure you're not only finding the best companies, but supporting them. And so when he suggested the idea to me, a light bulb kind of went off because our track record as angel investors is quite intertwined given that we've been co-investing together for years. Many of our best investments we had done together. So companies like Clearbit, Tandem, Placer, Command E, and Mercury, and a few others. But there was this kind of this common thread of us investing together. And we think that by doing this together via this angel fund, we would be able to increase our sourcing service area. Specifically, we have similar interests and evaluate startups through a similar lens. But we also think that through our combined brand and network, it would actually help us have an edge for finding great founders, which has kind of been our thesis since day one. How do we find the best founders? And through this vehicle, we now have a great opportunity to do just that. And of course, the most important thing is that once we're invested, uh, we can actually be more helpful. And I think with the long feedback loops of venture, being helpful and actually helping the companies that you support is really important. And so for us, that means we could help founders in a variety of ways, things like product, go-to-market, marketing, and fundraising, amongst a bunch of other areas. But those are kind of our dominant areas that we typically help companies with. And so we figured that not only would we make our capital more desirable, but we could actually be more helpful to the companies that we work with. And I think all of that combined in the offering, given kind of the size of our checks, which is about 75K to 200K, just made a ton of sense. Raul, why don't you talk more about what you're, what you're investing in right now, where you're interested so obviously productivity, that's very much our wheelhouse, and especially those that are viral SaaS. Tandem would be a great example, building the digital office for remote teams. And closely related are companies that I would call business infrastructure. So these are often not used directly by end users, but they can become incredible companies. Clearbit and EasyPost, both API companies, would be great examples. They power businesses, and once they're integrated, they're incredibly sticky. So productivity, viral SaaS, health, fitness, wellness, tools for creators and makers, business infrastructure, these are our five core areas of investment. Let's, let's talk about the idea uh, validation process a little bit, or idea brainstorm process. So Todd, post-event uh, joy, you, you, you explored a few ideas. Uh, post-reportive, Raul, you, you went through the idea uh, brainstorming process. Maybe uh, we can start with you, Raul. How, how did you get to Superhuman? Did you explore different ideas in between? And what advice do you have on the uh, navigating the uh, idea brainstorm process? There, there's you know, Some people like to go bottoms up, i.e. what problem are you experiencing? Or do you notice some people like to go tops down, i.e. I want to do something in climate or something in crypto? Um, and, you know, there are pros and cons to each. How, how do you think about it? Sure. The answer to which is appropriate, I think, depends very much on the founder and their personality. For me, the idea for Superhuman first came when I was actually still at LinkedIn. Uh, and I'd been exploring this idea maze, so to speak, of email for a very long time. I'd started Reportive, which was the first Gmail plugin to scale to millions of users that was acquired by LinkedIn many years prior. And so I'd been in the middle of this rapidly evolving productivity space for quite some years. So the first thing I'd recommend is to clear your head. I remember when I left LinkedIn, I was super gung-ho to go and start the next thing. In fact, Andreessen Horowitz reached out two weeks before I left LinkedIn. Somehow they knew I was about to leave and offered to pre-fund Superhuman. And we almost did that. 
except for a very pivotal conversation I ended up having with Adam Nash. Adam, who's now at Dropbox, previously was the CEO of Wealthfront at the time. He was an executive in residence at Greylock. And I went to Adam and I said, hey, listen, I'm about to leave. This is the company. I'm going to start it. And he looked me up and down and he said, you are in no fit condition to start a company. You even look burned out. Are you planning to take time off? And I said, yeah. And he said, cool. How much time are you planning to take off? And I said, oh, about three months. And then he shook his head and he's like, no, you're wrong. Whatever estimate you think you have you're actually underestimating by a factor of three. You should probably count on taking nine months off before you feel fully ready to start a company. And it turns out he was exactly right. That's roughly the amount of time off that I needed. So in those nine months, I had a lot of fun. I spent time here and in LA and in New York and some time in the Caribbean, time with my family. And I was thinking about lots of different ideas that I could do. And it was a combination, actually of the top-down approach that you mentioned and the bottoms-up approach that we also talked about. So top-down, I was attracted to this idea of, well, what if you were just purely optimizing for financial return? It's like this interesting academic, almost mathematical question. And I found uh, one or two friends of mine actually doing this really interesting mechanic where they would buy SaaS companies for in anywhere in the region of a million dollars to three million dollars each. And they were using personal capital to do so. They weren't raising money. So they owned all of these companies. And then they would 10x the revenue. The revenue that these companies were doing was anywhere in the region of half a million to one and a half million dollars of ARR. And then they would sell them for significantly more money. And they would have four or five of these things happening at any given time. And they would leverage the sales and the support teams between these companies. So it was like a highly efficient non-leveraged model with personal capital, private equity on small-scale SaaS. And the folks that I know who are doing this today, our listeners might know Jonathan Siegel or Andrew Wilkinson, a little bit more well-known. They're doing fantastically well out of this. However, every single time I started to dig into this space, I kept on getting pulled back to the notion of superhuman. And I do believe there is a thing such as founder market fit. I do believe there is, for each of us who are founders, the perfect idea, the product that you were almost born to build, the company that if you didn't build, nobody else would. And if you did, everyone would stand up, applaud, and cheer you on as you go. And for me, that was superhuman. It is just so much the company I ought to have been doing that no matter how good any other business opportunity was, I kept on getting pulled back to superhuman. And then it became about the impact. So the company started in 2014. And you know this was the heyday of Uber and Lyft. And I remember commuting home one day, thinking about how much time we spend in the car and, and how well Uber and Lyft have done to capture that. And then it occurred to me, the only thing that we spend more time doing than being in the car, short of sleeping, is our email. And those two things in tandem, the idea that this was the best company for me, number one, and then number two, on average, there's a billion professionals spending three hours a day just reading and writing email, made it a no-brainer. And so that's how I, I uh, navigated this idea maze, both top-down and bottom-up, ultimately culminating in the decision to follow up on Superhuman. I love that. 
Todd, let's hear from you. You, you navigated a, a few different ideas, a few different spaces. What have you learned from your experience? You also went through the On Deck Fellowship that, that might you might give if you were giving a talk to the fe- fellows on how to think about the idea brainstorm process or how to think about where to start slash how to think about wh- whether to continue because you you started some things, stopped some things, you know, ended up you know saying I want to be a full-time investor. But what less wisdom might you impart? Yeah. As someone who loves to build things, I, I think generally I've always followed the mantra of follow your curiosity and see where that takes you. Um, that's navigated me towards many different markets and spaces and talking to lots of folks. Um, and ultimately, I think there's you know that article by by Paul Graham where he talks about ideally you are a user and you're solving your own problem. And I think that's always really a good place to start. So you know, building things that solve your own itch means most likely that someone else probably has that problem too. And I think building things and putting, you know, even if they're small scale products or experiments, putting things into the world and not being able to, to you know, being afraid about talking about your idea and talking to others and potential users often helps you get signal and potentially where larger opportunities lie. And so an example of that is I had previously built a product studio with my co-founder from Eventually. I was traveling and I wanted to just an easy way to send people postcards from my trip. So we built a consumer mobile product for this and we shipped it. It got featured by Apple. We got tons of users for it, which is actually quite surprising. And then after that, what we noticed actually in the data was is that a lot of customers were using it to use it to send direct mail campaigns for the businesses. And the deeper we actually went into that, started talking to users and things that we wouldn't expect actually gave us really strong signals to see there was actually a much bigger opportunity to kind of reinvent direct mail. And so what came out of that was as we went deeper into that kind of rabbit hole, we saw there was an opportunity to build a better way to send direct mail. So think things like postcards and letters. And we ended up building a company called MailJoy. It's a do-it-yourself tool to design mail and track postcards and letters. So similarly to how you'd basically uh, send email marketing campaigns, we can now do that with physical mail. And the way we actually navigated that was because we follow our curiosity, put something into the market, and talk to users. Yeah. Awesome. Is someone running it full-time right now? No. Uh, it keeps running and uh, keeps growing by itself. It's a yeah. nice spot to be in. But um, no, we're not actually focused on that right now. What, what would need to have been true for you, uh, you or somebody to pursue it full-time? I, I, I'm more so, I'm curious about the idea of what, when do you keep working on something versus say, hey, this has traction or some traction, but... I don't know if it's it's the right idea or, or has scale. Like, what's the framework for thinking about it? Well, I think one thing that's important, especially these days where capital is abundant, is that many startups actually aren't good fits for venture capital. Yeah. And I think being aware of that before you go down the path of venture capital is really important. And, and I what's think, the framework for even assessing that? Well, I think there's a lot of things. One is, you know, is this a potential venture scale business? Um, I.e. billion dollars. IE billion dollars. So can you get to $100 million ARR or something equivalent? The second is, you know, is this something you want to dedicate five to 10 years of your life to? I think that's especially important before you take that kind of capital and hire people that have their livelihood dependent on your success. And I don't think that means that you sh- people shouldn't be building and putting products into the world if they're of smaller nature in terms of revenue or users. But I just think it means you have to look internally before you decide to take venture capital. Yeah. And so let's go back to the uh, your, your angel fund for a second. And this angel trend or nano fund, micro fund trend. You know, I, I did something like eight, you know, uh, GP checks in the last year. You, you, you guys being one of them. Are we 
is this going to keep happening or is was that is this sort of its moment in the sun you know two years from now are we gonna have an explosion more of, of funds emerging where, where do you predict this uh this nano fund or micro fund gp trend evolving so i think we've touched on this already in this year capital is already extremely abundant generally commoditized and what we're seeing is founders and especially serial founders are going directly to their peer group to raise their pre-seed and seed rounds. And this is a really smart move because in the early days, it's super useful to have active founders and operators on the cap table, such as yourself, in addition to the traditional venture firms. And that's what the savviest founders that we know are doing. But the challenge for founders is that this process can be super inefficient. Now, I did it the hard way for Superhuman. Superhuman has, I think at this point, over north of 120 investors are all well-known people that you probably would be familiar with, but I raised money from every single one of them manually. And I wish that a fund like ours had existed back when I was raising, as it would have been a much more efficient way to start working with the folks who could really help. So I think that's why we're seeing this trend, because founders are becoming more discerning about who they want in the company. But you were asking also about the future, what's going to continue to happen. Well, I don't think the trend is going to go away, but what will change is the ratio of first-time to more veteran fund operators. So this is the first time that, for example, Todd and I have ever operated a fund, and we're still getting to grips with it and determining the things about it that we like and the things about it that we'd like to change. And a few years from now, you'll have a bunch of people who will have been doing this for a few years. I wouldn't be surprised, therefore, if some of those folks like, actually, I really prefer to be operating a company, or I prefer to be a founder, or to hell with Silicon Valley, I'm going to get out of here. I think all of those things will happen, but the people who really enjoy it and the people who are very good at it, they'll continue operating funds. Yeah, my big question is, what does the fund three look like for these, these firms? You know, you guys, you know, Shrug, uh, you know, Weekend Fund, you know, uh, Work Life with Brienne, uh, you know, Chapter One with Jeff Morris, you know, 10 to 15 more we could name, all really talented people, I suspect will have great, you know, marks, uh, you know, for, for Fund One, Fund Two, you know, looks 5 million, 10 million, you know, so close, close to you guys. And then Fund Three, what happens there? Because you know, LPs that that fund five million, ten million dollar checks don't put in forever, and you're going to need to bulk up the institutions. Do these merge? You know, is there enough for everybody to, to make the transition? How do you see that playing out? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not exactly sure. I think what we're mostly focused on is how we think through it from yeah. our perspective as founders and operators. Um, we were actually just having this conversation before. But I think the first question we asked was, is this a franchise? And yeah. you see a lot of these funds where they, they brand it, it becomes a franchise, and there's kind of this progressive raising of more capital for every fund. Right now, we're a small $7.3 million you know, first fund, but should we go ahead and raise more, there's a chance that we may raise a similar amount. So I think it's it's TBD. I'm not sure the playbook of, of every franchise here, but we made a very explicit effort that when we were raising this is that it was not a franchise, it's an angel fund, and we will take it fund by fund. There is this notion that your fund size is your strategy. And one of the great things about managing a $7 million fund is that your check size ends up in the region of, let's say, 75k to 200k at the very most. And for the vast majority of rounds, especially with the way valuations are scaling, squeezing Todd and Rahul into your investment pool is basically non-dilutive, right? It's very easy to include us. And especially when you look vis-a-vis the value you're getting, it almost becomes a no-brainer. 
Now, the challenge is if you raise a $50 million fund or a $100 million fund, well, at that point, you probably have to start leading deals or go much later stage and uh, squeezing into much bigger rounds. Now, it's really hard to lead deals because the folks who are leading deals today are really, really good at what they're doing and they've built incredible brands and uh, funds like First Round, who led the seed deal at Superhuman, have incredible platforms to serve their founders with. And if you're going later stage, well, then obviously the return on capital is going to be accordingly depressed. The multiples really only exist at the earliest possible stages. So I would say the the first thing to consider is what is your fund size? Because that really will determine the overall strategy. Yeah. When we were thinking about this fund, we talk a lot about actually Mike's statement there, you know, fund size is your strategy. But we actually took the kind of market first approach and we said, hey, you know, what check sizes do we think we can comfortably get into these rounds where it makes sense given our value prop and our offering? And we thought that was about 75K to 200K. And from there, we kind of actually reversed out what our target fund size should be based on the kinds of checks we think we could deploy. I think the catch sometimes is when you go out and raise a lot of money and then you have to write very large checks to make the economics work. And then to Rahul's point, sometimes that's really difficult uh, and much more competitive when you're trying to write very large checks. Yeah. Speaking of markets, I, I want to talk about where you guys are investing, what your thesis is, how you're approaching the types of things that you're you're interested in, in, in investing. Yeah. So we're vertical agnostic and invest actually quite widely. For us, it's really just using our networks to find the best founders and backing them early. Sometimes it's pre-seed, sometimes it's seed. But there are a few categories we are excited about, but generally speaking, we are pretty agnostic to the spaces. When you guys announced the fund, you mentioned a strong interest in, in viral SaaS companies. Uh, well, why, why is that so appealing? And, and talk a bit more, more about that. Well, when Reportive was acquired by LinkedIn, I ended up reporting to Elliot Schmuckler, the head of growth. And he was the genius who had scaled LinkedIn from about 25 million to 250 million members. I was super excited to learn as much as I could from him. And so in our first one-on-one, we sat down and I said, Elliot, can you please teach me everything that there is to know about virality? And I thought he was going to teach me about viral mechanics or product workflows or loops. But instead, he gave me this insight, which in retrospect is 100% true, but which I think very few people are aware of. And that is no massive consumer internet brand has ever grown primarily through viral loops or viral mechanics. It's tempting to try and dream up features and workflows that drive your viral factor over one in an attempt to grow as fast as possible. But even for the best companies, that simply doesn't work at scale. Take, for example, LinkedIn, one of the most viral products ever made. We were never able to sustain a viral factor for any feature of more than 0.4. And even Facebook in its heyday was only able to sustain a viral factor of 0.7 and that for seven months at most. So what's going on here and how do these companies still manage to achieve massive scale? The answer is not virality through product but virality through word of mouth. It's the virality you can't measure and you don't specifically engineer for. And you achieve it by building a world-class brand and a product that people either can't live without or which people love, and ideally both. Now imagine companies like that, but where a meaningful percentage of those customers pay subscription revenue. Those are compelling businesses and amazing investment opportunities. So when we say we look for viral SaaS, that's what we're looking for. Yeah, I mean, I would just add on that viral SaaS products do take advantage of of word of mouth, but they also share a lot of commonalities with some of the best consumer products. For example, 
they tend to be extremely well designed, often to consumer level quality standards. We find that many of these founders have very strong design DNA. These products often have quick time to value. So usually getting started takes a few minutes and doesn't require a full complex enterprise setup. Often they have core workflows that enable distribution. So this means that a core part of a product involves sharing or collaborating with others. So if you take Loom, for example, it's an easy way to record a video on your screen and send it to others. The video is hosted and they give you a really easy link that you can share off. Since you're primarily recording something so you can share it, distribution is naturally baked into the product. Some percentage of the viewers will likely convert to become creators of Loom if they're not used already. And I think to Rahul's point, the thing that's great about this is that lastly, when you build delightful and useful products that users love, making the upsell to a paid plan or an enterprise plan is just far easier. Um, it's mostly easier because you know when you have a large portion of the organization already using your product, the sales motion to get them to move up to these broader plans is, is much simpler. And what's particularly uh, exciting about uh, prosumer SaaS right now? Why don't you uh, talk more about that? So I think it's worth noting that prosumer SaaS and viral SaaS are somewhat distinct. Prosumer SaaS is actually a specific kind of viral SaaS. And as an industry, we first saw the consumerization of the enterprise. I don't think I need to explain what that is, as we're all very familiar with it, as consumer software has become increasingly polished and delightful. We've come to expect the same of our business software. But we're now at the start of a new wave, and that is the prosumerization of the enterprise. It doesn't matter whether you're a CEO, an executive, or a manager, prosumer needs have been ignored for years. And yet there are tens of millions of power users out there waiting to buy software, and they're willing to pay a premium for the best-in-class software. That's why folks pay $30 a month for Superhuman. So I think the interesting question, though, is why now? Why is prosumer happening today? And the reason is, historically, it's been super expensive to play in this space. If you wanted to build, say, a new email client or a new browser, you essentially had to be a multi-billion dollar tech company. You had to be Microsoft, Apple, or Google. But thanks to better APIs, better developer tools, and better distribution channels, a startup like Superhuman can actually play in the space. Let's go deeper here. Todd, you had this blog post, the, the Superhuman for X. If any firm was going to invest in Superhuman for X startups, I think you guys have the have the credibility to do to do that. What does it mean to, to both of you? Rahul, we'll start with you. Well, I would say Superhuman for X startups are laser focused on the prosumer user. It really is this wave of the prosumerization of the enterprise. And that can take a lot of forms. But looking across the space of products in the area, I think there are four key components. So number one, speed as a core value proposition. This is everything from the raw interface and computation speed. For example, in Superhuman, we have the idea of the 100 millisecond rule, where every interaction takes place in 100 milliseconds or less. The idea of instant search, through to things like command line interfaces and keyboard shortcuts. Number two, I would say it's also design as a first-class principle. And I mean design in the most general sense of being extremely deliberate about every single decision. For example, at Superhuman, we use a custom typeface that is tuned for the requirements of email. Now, email is one of those interesting areas of products where you don't really control the content. It's user-generated content. So it could be a very somber email, like the passing of a beloved family pet, in which case, imagine if the font was something like Comic Sans, well, that, that clearly wouldn't convey the tone of the email properly. Uh, or it could be a really happy email if the font was an austere, serif, Times New Roman-esque 
uh, font. It also wouldn't feel right. And so we, we were very deliberate there, and we picked a typeface that both could carry somber as well as happy tones and also do things like have the at symbol, which typically is just floating in space, appear very nicely rested on the baseline of the typography. So zooming out of that specific typographic example, design as a first-class principle is is one of the second things that, that we think prosumer SaaS companies are going after. Thirdly, I'd say it's the focus on power over learnability. Now, this is very counter to traditional schools of thought for user experience design. Traditionally, we were all about getting folks to learn the product as quickly as possible. And that made sense when the market was everybody. Learnability made or broke products. But for prosumer SaaS, learnability isn't that important. You're dealing with power users. They're going to put the time in to learn the thing. The question is, what can they do once they've learned it? And it can be quite a counterintuitive approach to take for folks coming from that more traditional school of thought. And then, of course, fourthly, which we've already discussed, is charging a premium. Prosumers want the best products they can buy, and they're willing to pay for the best in-class product. Yeah, I've been fascinated by the prosumer space for some time now. Um, Even though Superhuman and Rule kind of pioneered the category to some set, I wrote a blog post last year about the superhuman product experience and superhuman of X startups. These days, with the fund especially, we see a lot of pitches here, but most don't quite match up to our mental model of great prosumer ideas. So in my post, I shared a framework for things to consider when evaluating prosumer ideas, especially superhuman of X startups, if you will. Helpful questions that we think are worth asking are, how much does speed matter for this workflow? How frequently is the workflow performed? How many hours per day are going to this workflow? And perhaps most importantly, what's the willingness of this market to pay for a premium alternative, especially if the market is mostly compromised of free options, like, say, Gmail? And so with the fund, we're actively looking in this space, and we recently invested in one, a company called Scratchpad. They're the perfect intersection of prosumer and viral SaaS, if you will. Scratchpad is a blazing fast workspace for account executives to manage and update Salesforce. It's a simple to install Chrome extension that lets account executives get started in minutes. We found that it helps them save hours of work each week while simultaneously increasing the effectiveness of their sales efforts. Account execs love it so much that they typically send it to their peers organically. And we find that it tends to spread quite well inside of organizations, which now helps them kind of navigate the upsell from free to paid. What's your perspective on, on consumer social right now? Is that something that you guys are, are looking at or have a, have a take on in terms of what, what needs to be true for, for it to be interesting? Yeah, that's an interesting one. We've now done two consumer social investments. I think from an investing standpoint, consumer social is quite bearish or pessimistic these yeah. days. But what we're seeing is a lot of really high quality founders, particularly second and third time founders that are building companies in this space. They're raising pre-seed round, predominantly from angels. Uh, These are experienced founders that have built consumer companies in the past, and now they're trying to capture lightning in a bottle again. What's particularly interesting about this is that many of these founders are actually not based in San Francisco or the Bay Area. They're based in places like New York and LA or other markets where, in my opinion, have kind of a better grasp of the cultural zeitgeist. And... I think that's really important when you're trying to understand what kind of the broader consumer population wants. 
And it will, time will tell how that actually plays out, but we're just seeing a lot of exciting stuff that's happening not here. So we've invested in one company called Vicaria that's trying to combat loneliness by creating private digital spaces. It's founded by Chris Bader, the former founder of Secret. They're building that into LA. We most recently invested in a company called TalkShow, who's trying to go after audio and kind of the rise of audio broadcasting. So there's a lot of strong tailwinds that are happening there with AirPods, the rise of audio, and just general creation and consumption of it. So, uh, Raul, you have this fantastic post on product market fit uh, in the first round review. There's also this great episode of uh, 20 Minute VC, Harry Stebbings. Hello, Harry, uh, where, uh, that you, you go deeper into it. I want to ask a couple couple follow-up questions. One is, why don't you specify a little bit the differences with thinking about product market fit from consumer uh, as it relates to en- enterprise? How should founders be thinking about it differently? And what are the most uh, common mistakes you see founders make, or maybe the most non-obvious mistakes you see founders make, whether it's uh, assessing product market fit or, or trying to cultivate it? One of the differences between getting to product market fit for enterprise companies versus more B2C companies is how you should run that survey. And so one of the things that I recommend if I'm working with an enterprise company is actually to run two, perhaps even three parallel tracks of survey. Now, for an enterprise company to be successful in this day and age, your end users are going to have to like the software because if they don't, chances are that the company will end up buying a different piece of software. But they're not the only constituent to care about. There's also the purchaser who is usually their manager or in a larger company there may actually even be a purchasing department. So let's take the large company example. In that scenario, I would actually run three different parallel surveys for product market fit. One for the end users, one for the managers, and one for the purchasing group. Because you want all of them to love the product. In other words, you want all of them to be at least 40% very disappointed if the product was no longer there. So I've seen a few mistakes of implementation of the survey approach, the product market fit engine. One mistake that I've seen founders make is re-surveying users. If you care about the 40% benchmark, then it's actually critical not to re-survey users but to survey new users instead, because otherwise that number no longer matters. The original benchmark was derived off the idea that you wouldn't resurvey users. But then that begs the question, where, where are all of these users coming from? Well, the good news is you don't actually need that many survey results in order to get directionally accurate numbers. It turns out you only need about 40 respondents for that survey to be meaningful. I heard someone recommend the litmus test of how much would you as a customer uh, pay uh, for me not to remove the, this product as a, re- as a replacement to how sad would you be if this product was no longer there? Do you think that's interesting? I think it's interesting. It's probably less widely applicable because it combines two different things. One is money. The other is utility. And there'll be plenty of companies for which the original product market fit question applies where the user wouldn't really assign a monetary value, yet nevertheless they would be very disappointed without. So I would say by all means, if your product is a thing that people pay for, that sounds like a great question to use, but it might not apply to every single kind of product out there. 
Yeah. So what you're sort of creating is, is somewhat of a formula for, for product market fit. Could, could you imagine there being the, with the equivalent of what MFAs are for writers or artists? I.e., there's lots of great artists and writers that, that don't do them, but there are lots, lots that do. Something like that for, for entrepreneurs in which they get trained uh, to, to cultivate product market fit and, and do so in sort of repeatable, scalable fashion? Revealing my age, it's been about 10 to 15 years since I was able to enjoy any kind of teaching around entrepreneurship or business studies. So I'm not super in touch with how it's taught today. But back then, I would say that the things that we learned didn't really apply to the day-to-day realities of building a tech company. And that's not to knock on the education at all. The reality is that the fundraising markets change every year. And the knowledge that we have as a community changes every year. Every year, a new post like the one that I've written is written again. And it adds on to this body, this this incredible amount of material that we have. What I would like to see, though, is that being piped back into the education system that we have. Because what that will mean is first-time founders will become so much more likely to find products market fit and ultimately to succeed. And if, if you wrote another post like, like that, what would the next topic be on? Or, or what, what's a topic that you want to see someone else write, write a sort of definitive post on that you think is missing from the ecosystem currently? Well, I'm actually writing a post right now. It'll be in first round review later on this year. And the idea is around building software like it's a game. And this is something that I find fascinating. I used to be a game designer back in the day. And it's really colored how we build software at Superhuman. And the interesting thing about a game is that no one actually needs them. So whereas most software companies are worrying about what users want or what they need, when you're building a software like it's a game, you don't worry about that because users don't need them and there are no requirements. But if you pull it off, you end up with something magical because people don't use games, they play them, they find them fun, they tell their friends about them. And that's a whole different kind of product management. It's a whole different way of building software. So that, that'll that be the next topic that I'm writing about. And, and give us a preview. What, what are some of the main, main takeaways there, or most non-obvious uh, things we might conclude from, from reading that piece in terms of how we could take it back to our startups? Well, perhaps the most non-obvious thing from the piece is this notion of flow. Now, we've probably all experienced flow in one way or another. It's the sensation of being happily engaged in an activity, finding it inherently satisfying, inherently enjoyable. The question is, how do you achieve flow? Now, fortunately, in academia, this has been studied extensively. And it turns out that there's a variety of conditions, some of which are obvious, don't get distracted, get clear and immediate feedback from the system. But the one that's most counterintuitive is that to experience flow, we need to exp- uh, we need a combination of high perceived challenge and high perceived skill. In other words, we need to think we're good at what we're doing, but we also need to think that what we're doing is really hard. And what that means is sometimes we have to make our products harder to use. So for example, in Superhuman, we give our users a very concrete goal and goals are a whole other facet of game design. The goal in Superhuman is to get to inbox zero. But let's say that you don't get that many emails or you're already highly skilled at managing your inbox. Well, then your challenge is pretty low. And instead of feeling flow, what you might actually feel is boredom. 
or relaxation. And these are mental states that we're not trying to design for. So if you're trying to design for flow, you have to increase the challenge level. And that's why in Superhuman, we add the twist, the challenge of cool. Get to inbox zero, but you're not allowed to touch the mouse. You can only do it with the keyboard. And that increases the challenge level, makes it feel like a game, and ultimately results in flow. What do you think the implications are from a management perspective, managing your employees, creating sort of culture, management structure such that everyone you know, you're on your team is, uh, is experiencing flow? I think that's a really great question and, and not one that I've spent a tremendous amount of time thinking about. All of my thoughts has gone into how do we create product experiences that result in flow. Uh, but just off the top of my head, I would break it down into a few different components. Are people getting rapid feedback on how they're performing? Are people able to work without distraction? Do people feel like they're on this curve of mastery, becoming increasingly better at what they do? Do they feel like their work is the right level of challenging? You're really looking for that Goldilocks zone, not too hard, but not too easy. If you can satisfy those conditions, then you'll create the ability for people to experience flow on a day-to-day basis. Let's talk about early hires. What do you guys advise your, your companies when it, when it comes to, to first hires or what lessons or, or non-obvious insights might you, might you impart? For any startup, the most important attributes for, let's say, the first 10 hires are an unnaturally high amount of persistence, resilience, and grit. It's kind of what you want to see in a founder, but also in those early employees. Because the reality is everyone is sharing the stress. Everyone is sharing the work. It's not going to be a smooth up and to the right curve. Even for the best companies, it's a roller coaster ride and you'll experience near death situations on a regular basis. You want people who are able to cope with that and even thrive in those kinds of environments. Yeah. We spoke about acquisitions in, in terms of venture being acquired by Ticketmaster. Uh, well, you wrote you wrote post on, blog post on on acquisitions. Uh, what, what's the mistake founders make when thinking about acquisitions, or what, what's the non obvious or or right way to think about it? Well, there are quite a few different things. I'll list them off, and maybe we can dive into one or two. So, number one, the honeymoon period is not a honeymoon. After you sell, you get this period of time where everything is is rosy and everyone's feeling great. And my advice is to work your butt off during that time. Do not be tempted to take time off. Number two, be gentle and patient. The best founders I know are unstoppable forces of nature. They leave debris and destruction in their wake. They would swim through a sewer and dropkick a mountain just to make sure they succeed. And that might sound like you, but remember, that approach is unlikely to work well in an acquirer. In a large organization, results come just as much from relationship building and leverage as they do from heroic effort and the force of will that we're used to. We call politics. Well, I think think politics is the bad version of relationship building and leverage. There's definitely a a good way to get things done inside a big company. And then there's a whole bunch of other things like get the right job title before you start so you get invited to the right meetings. Don't try to do everything yourself. Consider doing things the company way Big companies have playbooks for things like how do you buy a domain name and how do you open a port? Uh, Prepare for the long haul. Things will take a longer time to get done in a larger company. But the upside is you should be having much bigger scale and much bigger impact than you were able to have as a startup founder. Realize that you have a new job. If you were a CEO previously, you're probably a product manager now. And those are actually 
two very different kinds of job. As founder CEO, your job is to find a needle in the haystack. But as product manager, your job is to move the needle. The haystack is long since gone. And finally, get to know your managing sponsor. So whatever your new role is, you're likely to encounter roadblocks along the way, things you want to get done and you're not able to get them done. Build a really great relationship with the person who brought you into the company because they will be instrumental in helping you get stuff done in the acquirer. Yeah, I would add on to that just a little bit because our situation was when we got acquired, we were still growing and scaling up the business. It was just instead of us doing it externally, we were internally doing it. And so a lot of what I would spend my time on was basically being the interface between our team and the rest of the organization and making sure that our team was unblocked and just be able to make sure we had a really tight feedback loops with customers, we're shipping product, all the things you would do as an external startup, but we were trying to keep and maintain that culture internally. You guys mentioned that you're excited about companies that also have a distribution advantage in addition to product advantage. Talk a little bit about what that looks like or how, how you advise founders to, to think about how to develop their, their distribution advantage. There's a really great framework for this in the book Traction by Gabrielle Weinberg and Justin Mez. In the book, they strongly recommend that startups should spend roughly half their resources on products and half their resources on growth. Now, these resources could be anything, time, money, headcount. And we're looking for founders that aren't just going to laser in on the product and not worry about anything else, but are excited to think about building their business in that way. Now, this is also the philosophy that we practice at Superhuman. For the time and effort that we put into product design and engineering, and it is huge, we also put that time and effort into growth and making sure users are happy. A great example for listeners that don't know would be our onboardings. For each new customer, we do a one-to-one concierge onboarding with one of our wonderful onboarding specialists. And so from the fun perspective, we're looking for founders who have that kind of approach and who are thinking about novel go-to-markets and who are just otherwise willing to invest in the hard work and the energy that's required to get to massive scale. Yeah, there's a saying that goes, first-time founders focus on product and second-time founders focus on distribution. I think the right answer is that great founders think about both from the start. So when we see pitches, and not only do we find the founder's vision compelling, but we also see natural distribution advantages because of the market they're tackling and what they've done before to how they're thinking about it, that's the kind of stuff that gets us really excited. We don't often like to hear that founders are going to buy their way to product market fit or to scale. We often look for natural distribution advantages that are either there from the get-go or are have a line of sight shortly after they start going to market. Yeah. I want to close with a couple questions that are that are related. The lean startup MVP era, is that, is that over uh, versus the, he- the heavy startup, you know, bu- uh, build it perfect and, and then launch. It's been a couple of years, like, like Superhuman and Notion. That's both from a fundraising perspective and from a, a launch perspective. Uh, and then another part of it is what's the right framework for thinking about pivoting uh, in, uh, in terms of how you advise your, your startups to think about it. So from my perspective, it would actually be somewhere in the middle. I would always advise startups to raise as much money as possible, but to be extremely fiscally responsible, even to the point of conservatism over how they spend that money. And the reason for this is I've never seen a founder 
overestimate how much money they think they need in order to reach certain milestones. What I have seen, though, consistently, and I'm guilty of this myself, is underestimating how much money is needed to achieve certain milestones. And so my normal rule of thumb now is however much money you think you need, approximately double it. So initially, I set out to raise a $2 million seed round for Superhuman. We ended up raising a $4 million seed round, and we applied that philosophy in our Series A and in our Series B. But the trick is to not spend the money. And this is increasingly important advice in this day and age when rounds are becoming preemptive. So both our Series A and our Series B arguably were raised one round ahead of traction. We raised our $10 million Series A when we perhaps had, gosh, I think it was $10,000 of MRR. So an order magnitude less than you would normally expect for a Series A. And so what I said to the team was, we've got this money, but we're not going to spend it. And I physically moved the money to a separate custodian Cayman account. Yeah. Well, not quite the Cayman <laughs> But it was in a separate high-yield savings account. And it was just clear to the company that I had no intention of spending the money until we'd hit the traction milestones that actually warranted spending it. But the benefit it gave us was the ability to be super long-term in our thinking and our approach and also to be super calm as we were building the company. I've nearly run out of money in the past. Reportive came perhaps two or three weeks away from going out of business, and we were still fortunately able to sell at a premium to LinkedIn. And at Superhuman, arguably, I've gone completely in the other direction. I like to run the company at any given point in time with five to 10 years worth of runway. These days, I feel like it's never been easier to build a startup, but at the same time, it's also never been more difficult to break out from the noise. And so there's this big wave going on these days with no-code tools and other ways to create products that I think those are all net positive. It creates you know, ways for you to test your ideas and to get stuff in front of customers. But the MVP era of, I think, shipping something low fidelity and 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 hoping that takes off, I think, are behind us to a degree. I think, especially for consumer products, the expectations for your product have never been higher. And I'm sure you can attest to this with Superhuman, where you just had a very high litmus of product quality before you even wanted to get it into a broader audience's hands. Awesome. I think it's a great place to wrap. Uh, my guests today have been Todd Goldberg and Rahul Vora. If you have an opportunity to get them uh, as a uh, on your cap table, entrepreneurs, I, I highly recommend it. Uh, we, we we certainly try to do and are, are grateful for every uh, co-investment we have and look forward to more. Todd, Rahul, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a great episode. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at Village Global dot VC.